background was Claire Doolin, Sales, Product and Marketing Manager for Safari Destinations in September last year. And we had a most wonderful conversation. But sadly, life got in the way and I did not get around to editing it or broadcasting and publishing the episode. I've listened to it again. And despite it being four months late, I do feel that this is an episode worth sharing. Claire shares some really interesting and fun, light-hearted viewpoints of life in Botswana, as well as talking about COVID and, and the reality of corona-related travel. And at the time, four months ago, um, we none of us, neither of us could imagine that we're sitting in February of 2021 and the same situation still um, occurring where we are limited by international travel. However, it feels like the right episode to kick the podcast off again with. It is a great summary of what the discussions I've had previously with my other guests on the show. We talk about the Makarikari, we talk about Chobi and Savuti, we talk about photography, we talk about cultural tourism against wildlife tourism, and we just discuss what it is that makes Botswana unique compared to its competitors and neighboring countries. And as I go into um, restarting and re-recording episodes with, as we move into 2021, um, I am very pleased to to share this episode with you. And for those of you who are still with me and have not given up on after my four-month hiatus, I thank you. Being in travel and tourism has been a, um, it's been a bit of a love-hate relationship. And uh, this podcast was started from a place of real love for what I do and for the industry I'm part of. And it became hard to sustain it when the tunnel just kept on getting longer and longer. And unfortunately, there's still not necessarily light at the end of the tunnel for Botswana travel with um, COVID strains and international borders being closed to us and international quarantine regulations around travel to, to South Africa and Botswana. But we remain hopeful and we certainly remain an industry full of interesting and fascinating people. So I will continue to share the podcast in the hope that it gives everybody waiting and with anticipation and excitement for their return to Botswana, something to look forward to and something to think about in the meantime. If you have stuck with me, please reach out, whether it's by email or on Facebook, um, just to give me an idea of what it is you'd like to hear going forward and what it is that you um, enjoy about the podcast and to sort of <laughs> to remind me that there is there are people out there who are really interested and, and want to hear about about what we're doing over here and, and what life's like in Maun. So without further ado, I introduce uh, my podcast four months later, but a very interesting episode and a great conversation with Claire Doolan. Thanks for joining me. Joining me today is a Botswana specialist who spends her days traveling around the world talking about Botswana, particularly uh, advising travel agents on what different Botswana product is available and how that fits their, their clients. And that's in her role as sales and product manager of Safari Destinations. She's been a Botswana resident since 2011, so it is home. However, currently it's not, and she's sitting in Europe. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce her today so that we are able to have a conversation about what, what she misses from Botswana at the moment uh, as a result of the pandemic that she's not here. And, and let's just talk about Botswana a little bit from the perspective that's slightly removed because she's not sitting here at the moment. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Claire Doolan. Welcome, Claire. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So where are you currently? Uh, I'm actually sitting in Bavaria in Germany at the moment. That's a huge difference to Maun and or to Botswana where it's flat. You're in the mountains. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not directly in the mountains at the moment, but it's it's a very 
big contrast to Botswana. Um, I'm in an area surrounded by quite a few lakes and on a good day I can see the mountains. So that's quite different to where I'm normally uh, living in Kasani, which is more about yeah rivers and the bush really. So Fantastic. And uh, before we carry on with the episode, could you give our listeners a bit of an introduction into what got you to Botswana and what got you to your current role of doing this product and training um, about Botswana? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I don't know if you want the short or the long story, but I suppose, um, I think, uh, well, I originally grew up in Australia um, and many, many years ago before I ever left Australia, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to go and live and work in Africa for a while. Um, and what had appealed to me about that idea was actually spending a bit of time in the natural world and getting to understand, um, you know, the bush and the natural environment and wildlife behavior in a more in-depth way than if I were just visiting on safari. So, Way before I ever left Australia, I actually saw an advertisement for an internship on a game farm in South Africa, um, which appealed because it had all of these things in there that I could learn, which was how to drive a four by four properly in the bush and shoot a tranquilizer dart as an animal, apparently. Um, <laughs> and I kind of just, yeah, had this idea from there that something like that could be cool. Um, in retrospect, I'm very glad I didn't because I'm quite sure I might have ended up somewhere a little bit uh, dodgy to say the least but the idea stuck so many years later I've been living in Ireland actually uh, and then the financial crisis happened and I decided I was going to pack up my bags and go traveling for a little while um, so the initial plan was to do six weeks and go and visit a friend in Central America and that became about a year and a half by accident um, so long story short I actually ended up in Africa as part of this trip. And I was backpacking, traveling kind of first to Madagascar. And then I flew to Cape Town and was overlanding up to Kenya. Um, and then during that time, I thought, well, why don't I try this getting a job and living in Africa thing now? Um, there's nothing to really take me back to Ireland at this point. Why don't I just kind of see if there might be any opportunities? So while I was doing this overland trip, I actually came through Botswana for the first time at that point, and I actually hitchhiked into Botswana uh, through the Caprivi Strip from Namibia and into the Okavango Panhandle. <laughs> and I didn't actually see much of Botswana at that point because I was traveling on a budget, and most people do know of Botswana as this high-end exclusive safari experience. Um, and my guidebook really didn't suggest that there was much for me as a as a budget traveler. So I really just went to the Panhandle and then I went to Mound where I did a budget Macoro trip into the Delta. And then I went down to the Salt Pans um, and did a bit of a quad bike sleep out down there. So I'd liked Botswana and I really liked the people in Botswana. I liked the tourism model that Botswana um, has in terms of being low impact but I didn't really have the budget um, to do it as a leisure traveler. So while I was traveling along, I thought, well, actually, if I come back to Botswana and I try and get a job there, then maybe I can kind of do everything in one. I can see more of the country. I can experience a little bit of that high-end tourism um, as a side effect of working in the industry there. So um, from Kenya, I ended up actually flying back to Europe and then a friend and I drove through West Africa in a little Ford Fiesta over the course of about four or so months. And then I actually flew from Ghana down to Zambia and caught the bus to Mound and started handing out CVs. So that's how I ended up um, kind of coming back to Botswana and looking for a job. And it took a while. I think I arrived in April of that year. Uh, and then I did a few odd bits here and there. Uh, and during one of those odd jobs out in Guetta of all places, which uh, mm -hmm. for anyone who's been in Guetta, <laughs> there's not many people who stick around longer than it takes to kind of fill um, the tank with fuel and move on if the fuel station actually has any fuel that day. So exactly. I spent about three months out in Guetta. Yeah, <laughs> in the hottest point of the year. So it was like September, October, November, um, 
when it's just baking hot. And during that time, I actually saw an advertisement for um, a job actually doing translation work for safari destinations and consulting people on itineraries. Um, And that's basically how I ended up at safari destinations. Um, And at that time, the company was quite small. There was no marketing department at all um, or a sales or product department, anything like that. The team was, you know, um, a lot smaller than it is now. And it's just been that over now the last nine years or so that that role has then grown um, and a marketing department kind of got created. I was I think the first employee within that team, if I'm not completely mistaken. Um, and it's just kind of gone from there. And this Wanderlust that brought you, I mean, it just, it sounds amazing, all these amazing trips you did. Was that something you had in you from a, as a young child or was that year of the, the sort of six months that turned into years of traveling? Was that the start of it? Yeah, well, just in terms of travel in general, I was always interested in travel. Um but as much as I tried to badger my mother as a small child that it was somehow a necessity for me, she didn't agree. So <laughs> what she said <laughs> So what she said to me was, one day when you're old enough and you've got a job, you can spend all your money doing as much travel as you like, but until then, too bad, basically. So um so I'm from always the sound had, of it, yeah. that is exactly what you do. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I first left the country when I was uh, 19 and I did a trip to Thailand and Vietnam. And then the second time I left the country, I said, look, I'll be back in six months. I actually deferred a master's degree in English literature um, and I promised my mother I would come back in six months' time. I said maybe as much as a year and now it's been um, 14 years or more than 14 years, yeah, since I left Australia for the second time, the second and final time. So, yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's really awesome that you've managed to make such a, such a tr- apparent passion and such a, a big passion of yours your life I think that's really really awesome so well done on crafting that uh, that experience and even if a few months in Guetta uh, was was what you had to do to get there <laughs> well it definitely you know it came with its interesting uh, moments that's for sure uh, so you then at some point left Mount and moved to Kasani and are a Kasani yes. resident in as much as as except for the pandemic yeah, so I did do uh, the duration of lockdown actually in Kasani. And at first I was quite excited about the idea because I thought, you know, this is this once in a lifetime opportunity to have the Chobi completely to myself um, and to have no tourists around right in a year where we were having this incredible amount of water coming through the Chobi River system. And I had these like brilliant ideas in my mind about what it was going to be like to be in the park with no one around and everything. Um, But after a while, sitting in my house by myself, surrounded by four walls with all my friends and family quite far away, I realized that I wasn't really um, seeing much of Botswana while I was in lockdown. So at the end of June, I did fly out uh, to Germany and I've been spending some time just catching up with friends while I wait for the borders to reopen. Oh, fantastic. And it does give, you know, I think it gives an interesting perspective of being able to have spent the summer, you know, our, our Botswana winter in Europe and, and a different perspective on how, you know, you've, you've spent the t- pandemic in two places, which I think is also an interesting perspective. Mm. Uh, how do you feel, um, I mean, without getting too heavily mired in all of this, how do you feel um, Europe contrasts to Botswana in terms of the general attitude of the public and the experience of being in both places through this year? Uh, It's quite interesting because I think there's always been a perception that Africa is somehow behind when it comes to stuff like public health and safety and uh, social distancing and are we doing it right in Africa? Um, And what I realized actually coming to Europe is that in many ways, Botswana seemed to be taking things a lot more seriously than everybody else. So that was quite um, an interesting moment 
for me to actually realize that the measures that had been put in place in Botswana in terms of, um, you know, tracking people's temperatures before you go into shops and registering your contact details and your ID um, and everything before you go into the supermarket and having to wear a face mask uh, basically the moment you left the door um, or the front gate that really wasn't a thing here um, in Europe. And I think since since I flew out, I first went to the UK um, to quarantine. And in that time, there was really no one on the streets that I could tell were socially distancing or really putting in any measures in place that I could see at a glance. Um, and that has since changed. But it was a bit mm-hmm. of a culture shock for me, um, given that, you know, that the perception is that somehow the first world is doing everything correctly. And I'm, I'm not saying that one is right or one is wrong, but what was mm. interesting for me working in tourism is I'd spoken to a lot of, um, tour operators who said that, you know, they wanted to reassure their travelers that if they were going to come to Africa, that it would be safe, that there would be measures in place to ensure that their general safety and well-being. Um, and the first thing that really sprung to my mind, firstly, is, you know, being in Botswana, you don't have that close proximity to people usually, just when you're out yeah. and about, um, you know, particularly being in the bush, but even going to supermarkets and things, you know, we don't have that many people even living in towns compared to cities in Europe. And so um, firstly, it felt that there was more distance between people actually in Botswana compared to Europe and that people, yeah, were actually taking it more seriously in Botswana, which was not what I expected to kind of have a that the impression of when I came up here, to be honest. Yeah, and hopefully the numbers that, um, you know, obviously it, the, the cases are increasing in Botswana, but the, the relative number is still incredibly low compared to elsewhere in the world. So hopefully that also goes some way in reassuring people. And I think, um, you know, we're a small population in a large country where um, we're predominantly outdoors. And as you say, there have been some very strict measures put in place. I mean, this idea of do we, don't we, do, do we mask, don't we mask, these sort of conversations. We're not even a conversation here, just from the get-go. Government said, yeah. if you don't wear a mask, you'll be fined, and that's it. My kids are lucky enough able to go to school. Botswana is allowing kids to go to school. But, I mean, they wear a mask all day. It's just become part of their lives, and, and they've adapted to that, and I'm sure it's contributed to our low caseload. Yeah, and I think also just the fact that we rarely find ourselves in an enclosed space in Botswana, to be honest, Um, Mm. because that's something also that kind of dawned on me when I'm sitting on trains and things in Europe, um, which I've avoided doing where and when I can. But every now and again, you find yourself, you know, on a train going somewhere and everybody has to be wearing masks and all the doors and the windows are closed and you're in this kind of stifling space space. breathing under a face mask. And in Botswana, even though I was wearing a mask everywhere, um, you know, most of the time you are outdoors, you're in the bush, you're on an open safari vehicle, you've got the windows open. um, And if you are contained, it's generally with people you know, you know, if you're in a car or something like that, it's not, and and, and then voluntary, it's not, as you say, the public transport. Yeah, exactly. Indoor lifestyle of malls and stuff that just doesn't exist here. And of course, the other benefit um, of, you know, for a traveler coming to Botswana would be the fact that um, a safari is the most sort of socially distant, outdoors, open air kind of um, travel there there is. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think also for Botswana in particular, um, I mean, I mentioned before that when I was doing lockdown in Kasani, I was quite excited about this idea of having the parks completely to myself. Uh, And then the first thing I did when I got out of lockdown is I actually headed down to the Maharikari salt pans for a camping trip. I packed up, you know, my bedroll and my cooler box and one of my mates and we went down to sleep out under the stars there. And when I got there... Yeah, but then when I got there, I realized, well, actually, I have this place to myself all the time. <laughs> so it's kind of like, so even when it is tourist season, you know, um, particularly when you live there, you always know the spot you can go that there isn't going to be anyone around, actually. So I kind of thought to myself, why was I waiting for this opportunity to feel like I'm alone in the bush? Because that's actually why I live in Botswana. I've always kind of, you know, 
you're always able to find that spot you can get to where there's no one around you. Even in Chobe, um, which is where I live, and that's considered to be this over-congested part of Botswana compared to, you know, other parts of the country. And the only reason people have that perception, um, I believe, is due to the fact that there's only two entry gates to the riverfront Mm -hmm. and most people queue to go through this one gate. But when you live there, you know, you just get in your car an hour later than everybody else, or you take a different track to where most people drive and you don't see anybody. Um, And it's been quite often that I've been in the park in August out on Puku flats or Lechwe flats or around the Kabula Bula area. And I can just sit there, um, you know, with my sunroof open, peeking through the top of my roof, watching 200 elephants in front of me, just with the engine off, parked off for an hour and nobody comes up and bothers me at all. I just don't even see another yeah. vehicle. Um, and that's Absolutely supposed- amazing. Yeah, and that's supposed to be, you know, mass tourism by Botswana standards. So, um, yeah, so I didn't need lockdown, it turns out. I just needed to realize how privileged I had been the entire time um, to begin with, really. Well, I must say, like, um, doing the podcast episodes and having these interviews has been um, great for my wanderlust, um, not so great for my social life, because every available weekend, I'm like, oh, well, now I need to go to this place that so-and-so mentioned uh, in the podcast. And yeah. uh, James Wilson and I discussed the Chobe in episode five. And after that conversation with him, I was just so desperate to get to the Chobe. And so we did Savuti and are going back, definitely going back, hopefully going yeah. back at the end of the month. And um, and so doing the Chobe Riverfront um, and trying to watch, catch some elephants crossing without anyone else in the photograph is is the next mission. But as you say, well-timed experiences and sort of like just being slightly out of the standard timings of things, you can actually get that experience quite easily even in a normal year. Yeah, and I've got I've got a few tricks so I can share them with you afterwards about different roads to take and <laughs> how to avoid the crowds. <laughs> but I mean, in ter- <laughs> but in terms of um, elephant activity, what I find really interesting with the Chobe is, you know, with safari, people often think they need to get there first thing in the morning. They need to be there right as the sun comes up or before the sun comes up, even because um, they want to see the predators and everything. And with Chobe having such a focus on um, the elephant population there and, and seeing Ellie's doing things like crossing the river and coming down to drink. In my experience, it's actually been an, if I drive into the park in the middle of the day with my friends on a weekend that we see the most amount of elephant activity, you know, when it's really hot and they're coming down for a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so and everybody else is having enough, their lunch in their lodges. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, and again, that's when you have the park to yourself and, uh, you know, it can be quite hot in the, you know, September, October, but then you just pack a cooler box with a bunch of drinks in the back and a picnic and yeah, it's perfect. Matt Copham said the same thing in his episode because he was, he, you know, he was talking about this idea of um, photographic safaris and how everyone's obsessed with the early morning light, but how actually um, if you want activity, you can always um, and I know you're a super keen photographer, so, uh, you, you know, you know all of this, but you can always manipulate the photograph or the light afterwards to compensate for bad light. But if you want action, actually, in the middle of the day is when you can really get some good action. Yeah, definitely. And I think also along that same kind of theme, um, what I've, you know, I'm certainly not a professional photographer like Matt is, but I do like to, you know, my camera rides shotgun with me in the car if I go bundu bashing off by myself. So I've usually got it handy. And I find that after playing around with a camera for a while, you know, it's also the change in seasons. If in the middle of the rain is actually one of my favorite times to head into the bush because often people are cowering back in camp or, or whatnot. But that's actually when you can get some really cool shots in terms of the texture of mm-hmm. matted fur when, you know, an impala is like huddled under a tree, completely drenched from the rain, or you get just like one dramatic burst of light coming through the clouds in the middle of the rainy season that just gives you this kind of, you know, might light up this little mm-hmm. keyhole mm-hmm. Um, on an open grassland. And of course, the birds all come out as soon as the rain stops. Yeah, I think it's also just... Um, 
just just diversity in terms of the kinds of photos that you take because if also if everything's taken at the same time of day in the same lights then um you know it's also just nice to get different kinds of shots when you're out in the bush so all kinds of weather all kinds of seasons all kinds of times of day um as well as visiting different landscapes and areas within Botswana um you know it's it's nice it just gives you something extra to play around with well, that leads me into a surprise question for you. Last year, or maybe the beginning of this year, you were acknowledged with a very significant photographic award. What was it? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, well, it was actually a magazine competition run by Getaway Magazine in South Africa for Wildlife Photographer um, of the Year, actually. And that was for a photo I actually took at Kanana in the Okavango Delta um, of a leopard sitting in a sausage tree. And, I mean, that was an incredible experience where really I, th- I think possibly the reason I got credit for that photo was just due to the subject matter that um, it was this leopard actually peeking out at me through this gap in the sausage tree. Um, and the only reason that i seen her in the first place was purely down to the skill of the guide that I had in camp, uh, a guy by the name of Robbie. And we were just out driving in this floodplain at Kanana um, and there was this big sausage tree off in the distance. And we don't have a huge amount of them up in Chobe just because it's a completely different, um, you know, area in terms of what kind of trees and things that we have up on the Chobe compared to the Delta. So I think I was sitting there romantically like carrying on about um oh I miss the sausage trees and the delta and living in mm-hmm. Germany, you know I, I've missed this vegetation and I think Robbie like had completely tuned out and he was staring at this tree with a pair of binos and I thought okay now you've like <laughs> overdone it just um getting excited about being in the bush Claire <laughs> and uh and as he was staring he was like no so he's like I am like <laughs> I am listening but I'm actually actually just keeping an eye on the sausage tree here and I said well what why he's like well you see that big hollow in the top of the sausage tree um and sure enough there was this big split down the middle of the sausage tree but this big hollow at the top between the branches and he said you know there's this leopard who is a resident in this area and she's um last time I saw her she was quite heavily pregnant and I haven't seen her for a while and I'm just busy thinking that this sausage tree would be the perfect spot for her to be with her cubs actually to hide them. Um, and he's like, gives me the pair of binos and he says, just take a look at that sausage tree and see what you see there on the bark. And sure enough, there were these claw Amazing. marks on the bark, but at the gap in the tree, there was nothing. We couldn't see anything. And he just said, look, I don't know if she's in there. Um, maybe she's been in there at some point but let's just keep watching. So I gave him back the binos and I actually just picked up my camera and I had this 100 to 400 lens that I use. Um, So I was more or less using my lens as a pair of binoculars actually, rather than intending to take a photo. And just while I was staring at this gap, she just popped her head up and stared straight at me um, through the gap. And that was the photo that I took that, that I then won this prize for actually. Absolutely amazing. That's fantastic. That's a great story. It's so nice that there's such a good story behind the image because the image itself is very um, arresting. And I will definitely share a link to it in the show notes for the podcast so that anyone listening can go and can go and look at it on the getaway website. But it really, it really was something and well done for being in the right place at the right time, but also being able to compose it so that it, it you know, do it justice, do the moment justice. Yeah, I mean, credit definitely goes to Robbie for, I mean, and that's really where the, like the talents of a good guide who understands how to read the signs of the bush comes in handy because, you know, that would have been the very tree that I would have decided to run behind to go and have a quick pee, you know, like do my bush break or whatever. <laughs> And who knows who would have leapt out on top of my head had I done that. So, yeah, it's always nice to be in the bush with talented humans who who actually um, think twice when they're kind of looking around. So, and that's such a great that's such a great story, as you say, about the the, the nuances and the actual skill in guiding. Um, 
and and mm. exactly as you say that that consideration he gave that moment yeah absolutely so that leads me well onto my next question which is really about how um i mean you sell botswana um as well as our sort of neighboring countries you do a lot of training and um um educating of people about what botswana offers compared to um other destinations so would you mind giving us sort of a snapshot of what you think are the the things that Botswana offers that our neighboring countries or other African safari destinations or that where it where it surpasses its its competition in terms of destinations within Africa yeah I mean I think um it took a little while for me to figure it out myself actually I think uh just into you know I always knew that I loved living in Botswana and I loved going to the bush but as I mentioned before when I first traveled through Africa it was as a backpacker um you know I did a fair bit of hitchhiking and riding the chicken bus so my budget for safaris was quite limited and even though I went up to East Africa and spent a fair bit of time in West Africa I hadn't done a ton of safaris um I the first place I went was Atosha and I think I probably thought that a springbok was an impala to be fair <laughs> I definitely took <laughs> I definitely took a photo of a banded mongoose and declared it to be a meerkat that that happened um, <laughs> but obviously you know it takes time <laughs> it takes time to learn what you're looking at in the bush um so you know after having lived and worked in Botswana for a while and then you know, also selling safaris in Zambia and Zimbabwe primarily. What always struck me when I would get in one of these tiny aircraft to fly over Botswana was that when I looked out the window, firstly, you, you would not see a hill or a mountain or any blip on the landscape with the one exception of Savuti um, the whole time that you flew. But also the the tracks that you would see from the air most of the time were actually not roads. They were wildlife um, kind of corridors through through the bush. So at first, you know, flying in an aircraft, not necessarily knowing a huge amount about the bush when I first moved to Botswana, I would see these lines across this grassland and I'd be thinking like, what? Okay, so what is it? There's too mm-hmm. many of them. It can't be the wildlife, but it was, you know. And after you fly over Botswana, you just see these lines radiating out from waterholes, and it's obviously, you know, paths that wildlife are taking to get to and from um, water and grazing or browsing or whatever. And just the fact that there's this vast wilderness where the biggest impact you actually see on the bushes from wildlife rather than human traffic moving through that area is quite phenomenal. Um, and if I compare that to say Zambia or Zimbabwe, um, being the other two main destinations that, that we would focus on, you know, in terms of my professional capacity, there are some incredible safari areas in those countries as well. But when I travel between them and I look out the plane window, I'm often seeing, you know, agriculture, I'm seeing that very um, distinctive circle from a, a center pivot, mm-hmm. you know, um, from crops growing be- below. I'm seeing towns and villages and that kind of thing. And the other great privilege that we have in Botswana, I think, is that for a large degree, all of our northern parks, you know, from Maremi and the Okavango Delta, Kwai, Savuti, the Linyanti, Chobi, when you fly or drive between those areas, you are in the bush the whole time. You're not going through towns and cities. Um, you know, there is maybe Kwai Village. Yeah, that interconnectedness of the park. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and that's quite unique to have this unbroken, interconnected wilderness area where you can really still get these true migrations and movements of wildlife because they're not being impeded by highways and towns and villages and different land uses like agriculture. And that to me is what makes Botswana incredibly special compared to other places that you could go on safari. And now sitting back in Europe, what are the things that you miss about home, you know, over the last few months that Uh, you've been away? um, Well, I think one of the main draw cards for me in living in Botswana has always been just that sense of ease and freedom that you have about just existing, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm not 
particularly naughty, but if I'm in the first world, I'm usually <laughs> I'm usually worried that I'm breaking a rule by accident. Um, you know, and and it's not to say that you can go and like be like uh some kind of unruly human in Botswana, but um just the fact that life is a lot more relaxed and laid back and easygoing and you can just once you learn how to go with the flow because it does take some time to figure that one out um particularly on days you have to go and do anything involving red tape but you know once you develop that sense of patience and being on african time uh it's a pretty good rhythm to to have to you know to have in your everyday life actually yeah indeed and as you say that um you just got to get with the flow and um i i hope that most travelers coming to botswana even though they're not necessarily here long enough manage to pick a bit of that yeah. up whilst they're here that you know it it's um yeah and a gentle i think pace. it's really interesting actually because i've had this conversation with a lot of tour operators who sell travel to africa and they often want to kind of ask the question well what's going to happen on a day in the bush um, and travelers ask the same thing. You know, they they expect to have this fixed schedule and they'll know that maybe at nine o'clock we're going to see a giraffe and then we're going to go and, you know, do a sundowner under a tree later in the day or whatever. Um, and I, I, it's, I had one conversation with a tour operator a couple of years ago where he said to me, you know, there was this time where you would come to Botswana because it was this real adventure. You'd break down, you'd get out, you'd help people push the vehicle, you know, if you were stuck in sand or whatever. But now people have such expectations and we kind of feel this need to create this pre-boxed and packaged experience for them um, that, now instead of offering people an adventure a lot of people are actually looking for adventure prevention and that's what we're kind of in the business of selling so i think what i would definitely say to anyone coming to botswana or to just traveling in general actually it's not even just about africa it's lower the expectations not because you're going to get something um subpar if you do that but because you need to be open to the possibility that anything can change over the course of the day and i think that's really something that um i feel grateful to have that i believe botswana has taught me was actually just seeing how things go not trying to plan and control too much and then you really do have the most rewarding experiences in the bush it's also that not going out in the morning looking for that leopard but actually going out with your eyes open, appreciating the small details, and then sometimes just seeing the most bizarre wildlife interactions that you would never have anticipated might even be possible. I mean, I think one of my most entertaining moments in the bush was watching two Egyptian geese trying to drown another Egyptian goose. And we sat there for like 35 minutes, totally (laughs) transfixed. Um, And at this point we actually had – a male lion with two lionesses behind us and we'd completely ignored them and we were just captivated by this bizarre attempt to murder an Egyptian goose by these two other geese Um, and it's been one of the things that's just really stuck in my mind and I never would have anticipated it or sat in a vehicle and said to a guide okay today you need to go find me two geese trying to kill another goose you know so I think the more you're open to (laughs) to a variety of experiences and the more you're kind of willing to learn um, about the bush and the kind of the patterns of nature that and just kind of see how the day unfolds the more rewarding the experience will be I think. Yeah, and I think if we were to ask people who've worked in the lodges and the guides, um, I think almost everyone would say that, you know, it's the people who are easygoing and are open to all experiences who are the ones who walk away with the best experiences at the end of the day. Not just in terms of that they can appreciate a moment like your Egyptian goose moment, but that because they're open to the bush, they are more aware of the signs and then they actually end up with better wildlife sightings. They end up with those once-in-a-lifetime experiences in that um, they get to see things that are really interesting because they're not pushing their guide all the time to get to the next thing. And the guide has an opportunity to be like your experience at Kanana and really be considered and consider the situation and, and think for a minute. Well, if you're constantly hassling your guide to find the next animal, that's what you'll see. 
Yeah, and I think it's often just having the patience to wait a little bit before moving on, and that allows time for that drama to develop in the landscape where you're sitting. Whereas if you only turn up for that one thing and leave after you've taken a photo of it, you're not creating the opportunity for anything else to happen in that space at that, or to surprise you, you know, in that moment. So I think, um, and, and that's also why it's nice for people to, and I think now we're starting to see this trend where people are spending longer in any one area when they travel to Botswana and spend time in the bush. Um, and I think that's really quite brilliant if people can do that just to allow extra time to, you know, if the lions aren't there in the evening, but you found their tracks, but the next morning you now need to leave and go to another camp. Um, then you potentially miss an opportunity to actually follow those same lions the next morning. Um, or even just kind of see what story develops between different predators that perhaps you see in the bush. You know, sometimes you kind of, you stay a little bit longer and you get to learn a little bit more of the stories behind the different individuals that tend to be resident around camp. Um, whether it's a leopard with freshly baked cubs or, um, you know, a pride of lion that maybe took down a giraffe, um, the night before. And then the next morning, the hyenas are going to come in and see what they can salvage. And maybe you'll get an interaction there. You know, the longer that you have, the more you can kind of follow though that drama as it unfolds. Um, Cause often, you know, those things don't just happen in a five minute gap. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even the night noises vary from night to night. And so the longer you're in a spot, the more you can start to just even piece that story together that, I mean, I, I used to see this when I was in camp. You'd have the, you'd always know <laughs> without knowing even who it was. Because that was that's the guy who's been here as his first night because he'd comment on certain things. And then by night three, people are saying, you know, underneath that noise of the frogs, I heard this or whatever it might be. So there's also that element. It's just like all your senses getting settled in the area and um, being able to appreciate the story that's unfolding. Yeah, definitely. When you talk about the lions, so um, – as I mentioned earlier, on the back of James's episode, I made sure we got to Safuti, which I'm very horrified to have to acknowledge I'd never been to properly. I'd done it as a on a one-night stay in the middle of an educational. So I had definitely not done Safuti justice. And we were self-driving. So, you know, even for the people who are listening to this who are not going to be staying in the lodges and necessarily guided by a guide, but are rather going to be taking the um, more adventurous or budget option of driving themselves around, the reward of following um, those animals through a few days and then on our last morning coming around the corner and finding this beautiful male lion sitting there in the morning sun, you know, picture perfect. It was so rewarding. It was more rewarding than if, than if we'd seen a kill because we'd found him on our own and it was part of a story that we'd slowly learned over the last few days of you know, we didn't have a guide to explain the lion dynamics of Savuti to us, but we'd been able to piece it together of, oh, well, you know, we saw him on the first night on his own and now he's with these females. And we also saw that male in that area. And, and you know, time, I think, is a great luxury in the bush. And I think that you're 100% right that we should encourage everybody to, to spend as much time in Botswana as they possibly can. <laughs> but if they can't spend as much time in Botswana as they possibly can, at least consider um, extending their night stay in one spot. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And that, that's really what I've loved about um, living in Botswana, particularly since I moved to Kasani, because there is so much more wildlife around. You know, there are um, there's a hyena den that's not too far from where I live and every year I'll kind of go back at a certain time of the year and I've got a, um, you know, a spotlight that I'll take a little night drive down there and I'll check what's going on at the den now. And, you know, you go back, you might initially think it would be quite boring to go and sit at a place like that day after day after day, but it's after a while that, you know, suddenly you see, okay, where are the, you know, what's going on with the hyenas today? Why are there only two at the den today? Where are the other five out? Maybe they're out hunting or, you know, you start to kind of try to piece together what the habits are of the wildlife in the area and what they're up to. And you get to learn a little bit of the sense of the personality of different mm -hmm. individuals, maybe within a pride of lion or um, a clan of hyena or whatever it might be. Um, and you can't really see those patterns if you've only been, 
in an area, um, you know, for one day. So the more amounts of time you have there, the more you can start to kind of piece together um, those patterns. Yeah. And if um, someone was to ask you, well, you know, I, my, my, my clients or my, if I, somebody's planning their own trip and they say, I just can't afford to give Botswana as much time as we suggest, what would you say is the one sort of quintessential Botswana experience that anyone coming here should really try and have? Oh, I mean, that's so, it's such a tricky question to answer because I guess <laughs> the first thing I would say is, well, what are your expectations? Um, you know, I often find, and that that's an interesting thing too. I mean, you take a place like the Okavango Delta and it's so dynamic and there's so many different experiences you can have within that one area. Um, so where you'll visit the Delta, you know, and then 2019 <laughs> <too>. <laughs> and all the water dried up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's it. It's such a, there's so many dynamic changing areas within Botswana. So, you know, one place can be totally different on one day to what it is on the next. And, um, you know, I think sometimes when people have certain fixed expectations in terms of what they want in the bush, um, then that can be a little bit challenging to to kind of apply this one size fits all recommendation. So so many people will say you have to go to Chobe, you have to go to the Delta, and I just kind of think, well, why is it that you make that suggestion? I mean, obvious those areas have some incredible things to offer, but often it's just down to the name tag on it. It's the fact that they're these big ticket items and that they're well known, um, and that's mm. what draws people in. But actually, there's been very few places that I've visited in. Botswana that I would say that I've been disappointed to have spent time in and actually I can't really tell you that there was anywhere that I was disappointed to have spent time in um I I, three months in Guerta Um, well, that came with its own, that came with some very interesting stories. I mean, I once got uh, invited to guest judge a cross-dressing competition, um, which I never would have expected would happen in Guetta, of all places, uh, to raise money for people in hospital over Christmas. And I got very strange looks being one of the only white ladies in the village the time that I was there, which led to some interesting just conversations with people who kind of at first wanted to poke fun at me for being the odd one out and you know you yeah everything kind of comes with its own um interesting stories I think but what I would say for Botswana is I think a lot of people have really put this emphasis on it as being this safari experience and Botswana has so much more potential than just a safari to be honest um and I think there are often some areas that get overlooked because the first question I get asked when people um consider offering that to a traveler is but is the game viewing good there? Because they're so used to Botswana being all about this great game viewing. And sometimes it's about, well, no, actually the landscape's incredible. Or if you climb to the top of that little copy, you're going to get this brilliant sunset. Um, you know, so yeah, in terms of areas to visit, I mean, I, I do love Chobe because that's my home and that's where I live. Um, and I also love the Mahari Khari salt pans because I don't think I've ever bumped into anybody out there when I go down there you know I'll spend 300 kilometers driving across the pans by myself um and just not even bump into another soul over the course of several days um so yeah I I think more people should Mm -hmm. visit some of those areas in Botswana rather than just going for the big ticket items so my challenge would be include one area that you haven't heard much about and just let it surprise you yeah and I think that what you say, I mean, it's the people, it's the landscape. Yes, the wildlife's what ever, why everybody knows Botswana, but there's so much more to the country. And it's, you know, I'm hoping that through the podcast, I managed to get, raise that exposure in terms of what else Botswana offers. And um, Bonti Butumila joined me in episode three, and we discussed cultural tourism and, and how we would want people to start asking those kind of questions of how do I get to know the people better and where can I how can I have a cultural experience within Botswana and, and how can I go looking for these alternative um, alternative yeah. travel experiences that are not just always about the wildlife? 
So I like your suggestion, find somewhere that you've never heard of before. Yeah, or just that you don't know much about and don't research it. Just go and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. But when you do research, please listen to my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, that, Claire, I think that leads us pretty well into the snapshot sessions. I mean, I think I've, I've almost already asked you the one question, but are you ready for it? Sure. All right. So the first question, what is your most precious or valued piece of safari equipment and why? Okay. So I've decided this is a trick question because I can't narrow it down to one thing, to be fair. Um, but That's what I fine. Will... Give us a list. <laughs> what I will say is um, I have a list of my top five most prized possessions and of, of them, I think like four are critical for going to the bush. So one is my bed roll because if I have that in the back of my car and I go out into the bush in Botswana, then I can just sleep pretty much anywhere. Um Another two of them are actually both cooler boxes. So <laughs> there's the one uh-huh, in the back uh-huh. of the car <laughs> for making sure the beer is always cold. And then there's the little cooler box that sits by my center console. So I've got easy access to it while I'm driving. <laughs> this uh, is what you were referring to when you were saying Botswana offers you freedom to be a little bit naughty. Ha. Sleep anywhere. <laughs> Enjoy a beer while you drive for the bus. That's the freedom Botswana offers. Yeah, exactly. But not that I'm trying to encourage people to do anything too naughty. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and then uh, the other one, definitely my camera, because, you know, it just adds an extra dimension to being in the bush that you kind of pick up a camera and play around with composition and zooming in and out on things and and whatnot. Uh, And then, yeah, my car, actually. So having a good four by four. Yeah, and even on a quiet day, there's always something to take a photo of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives you time to practice. Actually, that's the nice thing about not being bombarded with tons of wildlife sightings is you can actually spin the dials a little on the camera and try and figure out maybe where you should be by the time um, with your settings, by the time you do get to something that you want to photograph. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, and then this next question is the one that I sort of already have asked you, but um, I'll ask you to sort of be a bit more specific on this one. Which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor to Botswana visit? Ah, okay. Um, you know, I've got a special spot for the Maharihari salt pans um, and that whole national park, actually. Uh, and I think not enough people go there, so I'm going to be very biased and say that people should go specifically for the fact that no matter what you combine it with, it's guaranteed to be a contrast to anything else you've seen in Botswana. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, Steve, Amira, and I spoke about the stars and um, what a spot. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, you see this, yeah. And either stargaze will be there under the full moon. Well, I know, um, yeah, David Dugmore, who's a big safari character, in Botswana, he spent a lot of his time down in the pans and, and he's often talked about reading a newspaper sitting on the pans in full moon because that moonlight bounces off the pan and kind of illuminates the page. So you don't need a torch or anything. Um, though for me, I, yeah, I prefer to be able to sleep. Um, I actually, on a new moon, I think it's brilliant because you just see everything in the Milky Way and you see the stars all the way down to the ground in every direction. And I can't think of anywhere else on the planet that you get that. So absolutely for star watching. Yeah. Because it's an environment where you feel pretty, um, I mean, it's a low game environment in terms of risk. Mm -hmm. So then lying with it on a bedroll um, and just having nothing, no roof over your head is really a special experience. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, you know, just, I kind of think of it like, the adult version of pulling an all-nighter so you know back when you're in your early 20s maybe you go to like the disco or the rave (laughs) or whatever um and then because and the reason I say that is because over the course of a night the stars really change position in the sky drastically 
And when you're somewhere like the Mahari Hari, you really actually notice that. And because the stars are so bright and you're sleeping outside of a tent, just the starlight will often wake you at various points in the night. And instead of trying to go back to sleep, if you just lie there with your eyes open and just watch the sky for a while, you know, you start to see little shooting stars and different things going on up there. And then suddenly you think you've blinked and you open your eyes again and the whole universe is just completely shifted position and you realize that you must have actually gone out you know fallen asleep again for another hour or so and you can just spend a whole night just waking up intermittently mm-hmm. and just seeing something different above um in terms of what's happening in the universe so yeah absolutely amazing all right next one one resource somebody coming to Botswana should know about oh that one's tricky for me because um I actually think when it comes to travel in Botswana that the guidebooks don't do it justice and a lot of the information you find online also doesn't do it justice. So what I would say is, you know, actually if you have access to a safari guide who's in Botswana or one of their books or even a podcast like this where you can actually hear someone talk about the destination firsthand, um, then I think that's kind of the best way to give you a sense of just the, the passion that people who live in Botswana have for the country um, to kind of inspire you to go, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, next one, we've talked about the cooler box. Your top sundowner destination <laughs> or drink or piece of advice to have a fabulous Botswana sunset? Ah, well, I have a little secret spot that's actually just outside of um, Kasani. It's technically in the Chobe National Park and it's right on top of a hill that actually overlooks the entire Chobe River in front. And then you have the floodplains across the other side of the river over into Namibia. Um, and that's just a brilliant place to watch the sunset because the sun drops down right in front of you. Um, and you can see Sududu Island in the foreground, which often attracts massive herds of buffalo or elephant. And during the green season, all the storms come from the Namibian side. So you can be sitting there on the hill with this Technicolor sunset and a whole bunch of buffalo in the foreground Mm. with lightning striking every couple of minutes, you know, off in the distance. Um, So that's definitely my favorite spot to park off with a gin and tonic oh well that you've answered my next question which was going to be and what's the drink <laughs> gin tea yeah yeah or go the good old-fashioned gin and tonic can't go wrong all right the last one and i i really am intrigued to hear this from you because you are an explorer extraordinaire when you're home in bots and you have a weekend <laughs> to explore which i know you'll make sure you get the first Ooh, opportunity um, where are you going to go you know what? I've always had it in the back of my mind and I've not done it yet, but I mentioned the Maharikari salt pans before, but I would love to go down there during the rainy season and just um, attach a kayak to the top of my car with a bunch of ratchet straps and get as close to the pan as I can and then just go out for a paddle and just see where I end up when the pans are full of water. Oh. So I've not managed to do that yet but it's definitely on my list of... Yeah, okay. It's not It's not a wave. You actually think you'll be able to get far enough without busting oh, out. Well, I think, you know, I've actually gone for a swim in Suapan before. <laughs> be heavy. But I think more for the novelty factor, okay. to be honest, because I think um, just to be down there in the green season <laughs> and to see what happens, I know it's not, it's nothing I'd recommend anyone saying do, but that's, it's on my list. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic, Claire. Thank you so much for those uh, that, those suggestions. And now you know what she was meaning when she said Botswana gives her the freedom to be a little bit naughty. <laughs> sure. Well, I hope that it isn't long before you are home and we all wait to see um, see what happens in the next sort of few months. But in the meantime, enjoy being in Europe and enjoy the opportunity to experience life slightly differently to, to Africa. And um, we hope it's not long before before you're back overlooking the Chobe and having a gin and tonic. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, there's still so many places to explore in Botswana, and I think that's what keeps those of us who live there 
in Botswana for so long as there's always something else to do. So I'm sure I'll be back uh, before too long. All right. Thank you so much, Claire, and all the best for the rest of 2020. Yeah, thanks very much. You as well. from Safari Destinations and interestingly enough as I release this podcast um, episode which is months after Claire and I had this conversation we have had so much rain in Botswana that we actually um, are able to kayak on the pans so it's a great pity that Claire's not here um, she's not back in bots yet and has not been able to get out to the pans to kayak on them but there was um, there have been people <laughs> traveling down to the pans to go out there they are so wet at the moment and we're facing absolutely exceptional double than average um, rainy season this year thank you for joining me this episode and i look forward to bringing you another episode soon